0: Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, welcome back to our New Testament overview season on the podcast. We're going to be getting into uh, probably the I think the longest of Paul's letters, and maybe the most famous in some ways, the letter to the church or churches, as we'll talk about, uh, in Rome, uh, the book of Romans, um, which is such an important letter in the New Testament, and one that is uh, very frequently misunderstood as well, important to read the whole thing from front to back.
1: Yeah, and a lot of it centers around a discussion we had when we studied the book of Galatians a few weeks ago in the Jewish and Gentile relationships that were going on in these different churches. Uh, two groups of people who, before Christ, would have hated each other, would have had nothing to do with each other, and that is still the case in the culture, but now that they're in Christ, they're going to have to learn to put those differences aside and work together um, both for Jesus, but also there's some things they need to work on for their personal lives as well and their personal growth. So this is a really cool letter where Paul outlines what the gospel is so that it will unite these two groups of people.
0: Yes. And one of the interesting things about the church in Rome, there are a few letters from Paul like this, is that he, from what we can tell, did not start the church in Rome. Um, But it may have been started by people who went to Jerusalem from Rome on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, we have that
1: long list in Acts 2 of all the places where the Jews came from. Sixteen different nations are listed there, and one of those is Rome. And it's interesting how it says it. It actually says that there were visitors from Rome, Mm -hmm. which is cool.
0: Yeah. So that's a possibility that the text doesn't tell us how the church started. We do know that Paul has not been to Rome when he writes the letter. He says, I've wanted to come to you but i haven't yet i'm excited to get to you and then to go on to spain but uh the church started sometime before paul writes this letter it had been there a while and one interesting background point that goes back to your jew gentile uh question is in acts 18 when paul comes to corinth on the second journey he meets Aquila and Priscilla and it records for us in Acts 18, 1 and 2 that they had come to Corinth because they were Jews and they had been kicked out of Rome by this decree from Claudius. And so if the church had already existed when they got kicked out, it's kind of interesting to think about the history of the church. That it would have been Jews and Gentiles probably working together and then Claudius says, okay, Jews, all the Jews in the city, you're out. And so, including Aquila and Priscilla, they have to leave. And so that would have left just a Gentile church for, I'm not sure exactly how long, how many years that might have been. But by the time Paul is writing the letter, there are obviously Jews and Gentiles together in the church. So the Jews have come back to Rome. And you think about the dynamic that that would have created and how that might have heightened some of the tensions. Like the Gentiles kind of got settled into doing their things, maybe in their cultural way. And now the Jews have come back, and they're having a hard time. There's a lot of
1: friction. And some of these Jews are keeping to some of the tenets of the law, some of them good, some of them bad. And now you can imagine them wanting to put that on the Gentile brethren and how that would cause some friction within the congregation. Uh, One of the other things that's kind of cool, whenever you see the end of the book of Romans, um, normally we start our letters off by saying hi to everybody that we're writing to. Paul normally waits to the very, very end to to give special shout-outs to different people that are in that area. And in Romans 16, it is the longest greeting section that we have. And the reason why I bring that up at the beginning of the podcast is because Stephen had just said Paul had never visited Rome, which is absolutely true. So how is it that Paul knows all of these people, but he's never visited Rome before? Well, as you read through the book of Acts, and you see people like Priscilla and Aquila traveling, uh, that would have been true of a lot of different people, a lot of different Christians, especially in a city like Rome, kind of like our New York City or Los Angeles or Sacramento or some of those areas that just have a lot of through traffic and people moving in and out. The same would have been true back then with the Christians. And so odds are that these are people Paul had met at the other works he had been a part of who had ended up in Rome. And so Paul knows a great deal, of, a great amount of people there as he writes these things.
0: And it's really cool to see when he gives all those shout outs in Romans 16 that it looks like there are actually multiple smaller congregations in the city there. It's not just one church in Rome. Now, when he addresses them in chapter one, he will say to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Um, so it's to Christians, obviously. But we learn at the end of the book that there were apparently multiple small congregations meeting in homes because he talks about some different uh, references there. Um, so Paul actually writes this letter uh, on the third journey. There's this little reference to it in Acts 20, verses 1 through 3, where he spends three months. In what it says, Greece, mm-hmm. which is probably a reference to Corinth, uh, from what we can tell, and uh, Paul has already collected the uh, funds for the needy Christians. We talked about that in First and Second Corinthians, and now he has come to Corinth finally, and things have gone well there, gratefully after two letters preparing for his visit, and while he's there for three months, he apparently writes the letter to the Christians in Rome. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we're going to learn as we go through this letter is that Paul apparently is wanting to prepare the brethren in Rome, get them unified and on the same page about the gospel so that Paul can use Rome as a new launching point to go further west, hopefully to Spain, mm-hmm. and use Rome kind of like he did Antioch, mm-hmm. uh, where he would be go out from Antioch on these different journeys. Well, he, he's got big plans. What's interesting about all that is Paul is going to make it to Rome, but not in the way that he planned. If you go back to the season two where we went through Acts and talked about the way he ended up in Rome was as a prisoner. That's exactly right. And so it is interesting that he will get to visit some of the brethren, but they have to come to him as he's apparently under house arrest when he does finally get
1: to Rome. So one of the ways Paul is going to unite the Jews and the Gentiles is in pointing out that they are not justified by works, but they are justified by faith equally in Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile. And that is a major theme to see in the book of Romans. Now, it needs to be noted that it is a long argument, and Paul will take different pit stops along the way that are all relevant to try and help both the Jew and Gentile understand the points that he's making. And so that makes it really vital to take the entire thing in its context, to read it in its entirety, and understand it. Um, Stephen, is it fair to say that, that there's a lot of people who find themselves in, in theological trouble uh, when they are only zeroing in on one place in Romans rather than seeing the entire thing? Um, in fact, most theological debates, you see people throwing passages back and forth at each other out of the same book, Romans, and saying, but he said here, but he said here. Paul is not at all contradicting himself, but he is painting an overall picture that needs to be seen together. And so when you run over to chapter 9 to make a point, you better remember what Paul said in chapters 1 through Mm 8. It'll make it a whole lot easier to understand.
0: Yes. It's one of the most context-dependent letters in the New Testament. It's not like reading the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, where even if you don't know the whole book, you can take some of those Proverbs and be like, oh, yeah, like that's a really helpful principle. Yeah, that's a good, but a, good analogy. A few, Romans is not Proverbs. Uh, it, you can't just take a, a verse out of Romans and run with it. You've got to look at the whole thing. Because Paul does, one of the things he does in Romans is anticipate counter-arguments to what's coming up. And so he kind of, the book ends up being kind of self-correcting in some things. And so that's really helpful to try to see the whole forest before you zero in on the trees and run with points from individual verses.
1: One of the other themes you'll see through this book is the theme of transformation. And in a second, when we overview chapters 12 through 16 and talk about that application section, that'll make more sense. But Paul is going to be making the point that because the gospel unites us all together, it is fundamentally going to change us First, but also the way that we see our brethren and the way that we see other people. Um, And so the gospel should transform us into something far better than we were before.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful section there at the beginning of chapter 12. So on that, the book of Romans has two big sections, as many of Paul's letters do. Um, Chapters 1 through 11 of Romans are kind of the concepts, the principles, and of course there's lots of good application in there. But he's talking through his long argument, uh, meant to unite the Jews and the Gentiles and say, you all have the same problem, sin, and you all need the same solution, uh, and you all get there through trusting in Jesus. So we'll talk about that in a little more detail in just a minute. But then chapters 12 through 16 uh, is this pivot point in the book where Paul shifts and now says, okay, because you now understand these concepts, here's how you live it out And so in chapter 12, all the way through like 1513, he has like several different sections that you can break down and say like, okay, here's how you act about the gifts that you have. Here's just some various exhortations. Here's how you respond with respect to the government. All of this is part of being a living sacrifice and being transformed, not conformed to the world. And then at the very end, uh, he will talk about his plans to visit them and his mission as an apostle uh, to the Gentiles.
1: And we'll get to that. When we get to it. So, so looking at Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul, he starts his gospel off in the very traditional Pauline way. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, Christ uh, called as an apostle, uh, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, So Paul really opens up the book of Romans, kind of already getting to what he wants to talk to them about. And that is that, A, uh, yes, he is sent by Jesus, has been set apart for the gospel of God, but this is the thing that was promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, that Jesus, the son of David, Uh, is the Son of God by power of the resurrection. All of that is really a boiled-down version of what he's going to get into in the rest of chapters 1 through 11.
0: Yeah, oftentimes Paul will kind of lay out, okay, here's what I'm going to talk about,
1: and then he talks about it, Yeah, and then
0: sometimes he'll recap at the end. He does that a little bit in Romans as well, uh, at the very last paragraph of the book. But Romans has one of the longest introduction paragraphs. He hits the ground running, man. He was like, I'm excited to talk with you all about the gospel and what this really means. And sometimes we... uh, look at the kind of what we call the theme verse of Romans or the thesis uh, in Romans 1 verses 16 and 17 he lays down really what's going to be the foundation for the rest of his argument Romans 1 16, he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so from the outset, he, he, he zeroes in on the importance of faith. And there's probably no other book in the New Testament that delves as deeply into what it means to have faith in Jesus as the book of Romans does. What that does mean, what that doesn't mean, the pitfalls on misunderstanding grace and faith and works, Um And it's a delicate balance as he works through. There's a lot of ways that grace can be abused and faith can be misunderstood. Yes. And so he has to be very clear as he emphasizes different parts of how we're saved that we don't go to other extremes. Uh, That's one thing that's hard to avoid in Romans is to hold the different concepts that the book presents in balance with each other and not run to one extreme or
1: the other. So one of the things Paul needs to do, he, he needs to get to the good news. He needs to talk about what grace is, how we access that grace from God. But in order for us to understand God's grace, we got to first ask the question, well, why, why do we need God's grace in the first place? And so that's why Paul really begins in chapter 118 with the bad news. And he breaks it up first talking to the Gentiles, pointing out that they've been stinky from the beginning and that they really have messed it up. And uh, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Paul is saying the Gentiles have no reason to say that they couldn't have believed in God because God left things behind. He has his creation. His nature has been all over the place the entire lives of the Gentiles. There was enough for them to have believed in God and yet they became fools in verse 22 and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Idolatry. Exactly. They served the creature rather than the creator. And so God gave them up to their degrading passions, verse 26 says. And so Paul points out from the beginning that the Gentiles are, are without excuse. They, they cannot just rest in saying, well, we never knew God the way the Jews did. He never gave us the Torah. Well, you might not have had the Torah, but you had other ways to believe in God and know his will. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the Gentiles are without excuse. They have sinned just as much as everyone else.
0: Right. And so there's kind of two things that Paul's doing in this opening section, chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. One is showing that the Gentiles aren't off the hook because they didn't have God's law. Uh, They had a conscience and they had creation. They knew enough to know that there's something more powerful than them and that they need to do right to whatever degree they understand it. And they didn't do that. They all failed to do that. We all have failed to do that. But then after the Jews who are probably saying, preach it, Paul, go get them, you know, like they're big on that. Paul turns to them and says, hey, listen, um, in chapter 2, verse 1, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. So he talks about how impartial God is. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, if you're doing these things, you're not off the hook. But then he turns specifically to the Jews in chapter 2, verse 17, and says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law, and then goes on to talk about how they viewed themselves. But basically his point is, in verse uh, 21, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Will you preach against stealing? Do you steal? Uh, And and he goes down a list basically saying, you've done the same kinds of things that the Gentiles have done. You are every bit as much in need of a Savior as they are. Yes. Which would have hurt for them to hear with their approach to the way that they were thinking about
1: it, but they need to hear it. We all need to hear it. And so you can imagine being a Jew hearing this, and you, you might be tempted to think, Well, then, Paul, what in the world is the purpose of the law in the first place? Why did God do all this? If you're telling us we're just as bad as the Gentiles, then why would God give us the law? Well, that's the question Paul will ask in chapter 3 and verse 1. Because Paul, pretty consistently throughout this book and some of the others, he anticipates arguments. He's like, oh, well, you know, I don't want to overcorrect and yank the wheel too far this way, so I'm going to straighten it back out and explain it. And that's what he does in chapter 3. Uh, really, verses one through twenty is explains what the benefit of uh, an advantage of Judaism was.
0: Yeah, which just remember those. Uh, what shall we say then? You know, and then he'll give a, a potential argument, and he will say, by no means, and then he'll you know pull it back around. But he finally gets to the good news in chapter three, verse twenty one and following, and, and the paragraph in Romans three, verses twenty one through twenty six is one of the most important in the whole book. Um, obviously, you got to read it all in context, but you can just spend a long time meditating mm-hmm. on the dense truth that Paul is pulling, pulling out in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And I'll just read this just as we think about the core of the good news. It says in Romans 3, 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We don't have time today to (laughs) delve into all the uh, things to talk about here, but... This really shows us the kind of thing that Paul is seeking to get the Christians in Rome to understand, yeah. and really everyone that he's teaching. Here's how you can be made right with God. This is God's eternal plan that he's been working from the beginning, and it's all coming together in Jesus. And we need to respond by trusting in what God has done, because it's not you earning it. It is God, it's God's gift of grace. It's not an unconditional gift. But it is a gift of what God has done for you. We cannot save ourselves. Yes. Uh, we need God's grace and mercy
1: through what he's done in Jesus. Amen. So in chapter 4, uh, he is going to use an example that these Jews would have been very familiar with, and that is with Abraham. And he points out that Abraham was actually justified f- by faith before he was even justified by works. Um, and so th- that will be really the, the crux of the argument in chapter 4 to help them understand that even their forefather, the, the one that they're descended from, it was faith uh, that was required of him. And, and the
0: timing point he makes is that it was before he was circumcised, before he received the sign yeah. of the Jewish covenant. And so Abraham becomes a perfect example not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles.
1: Yes. And so uh, in chapter 4, in verse 22, it says, Therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe or have faith in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Um, And so... That chapter five really launches into the the benefit of being justified by faith.
0: Yes, and what a blessing! Yeah. Uh, in five one, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and he goes into just pouring out all of the benefits that we have because Jesus has died for us, and he's writing to Christians who have received that grace, responded appropriately to. Uh, God and faith. But one of the sections that I think is most beautiful is in 5 verses 6 and following, Mm -hmm. where he says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there are so many beautiful parts of this that we don't have time to get into every uh nook and cranny here but as you read romans you can't help but stand in awe of the love of god as he has shown us such grace and mercy through jesus it is just astounding to think about what god did while we were still enemies while we were still rebellious god provided the way for us to be saved he loved us that much
1: to do this yes and so the emphasis here is on what Jesus did what God did he he paid 100% for the sin and there's nothing we could have done to come up with that, that that's exactly what the idea of mercy is uh, God showed that through his son Jesus and that gives way to uh, another part of his argument in
0: which Paul goes all the way back to Adam that what Christ has done is so revolutionary. There's no one else you can really compare him to on a human scale than the first man who ever lived and the consequences of what happened when Adam sinned. Um, now, Paul is clear in this section that sin spreads to all because all mm-hmm. sinned. Yeah, end of verse 12. 12. And again, this is one place it's easy to misunderstand why Adam comes up. We've all participated voluntarily in the problem of sin. But he goes through and he describes Adam and Christ both in parallel and in contrast. That the scope of the effect of what they have done is universal. (laughs) That uh, in Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. And both of those things are conditional. Uh, We participate in Adam's sin conditionally. And we participate in the life of Christ conditionally. But wow. Wow no two human beings, and of course Jesus is more than just a human, but no two human beings that have lived on earth have ever had such a universal impact than Adam and Jesus have. And so it's a really beautiful and kind of challenging section to to think through the effect of what Jesus has done and how that has caused grace to abound to the same level that sin has increased. And so he wraps up chapter 5 by saying in verse 20... Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness
1: leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, and so that kind of ends this really beautiful section on what the gospel is and what it does for us. And so Paul is going to do that thing we talked about earlier where he anticipates arguments or maybe some false thinking based off of what he just said. Paul is constantly steering the wheel as straight as he can, and when he gets it a little right, he gets it back over by giving the necessary applications. And so in chapter 6, just read his argument here in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Okay, and so Paul, he comes in and he says, okay, I've just gotten done talking about grace. But that doesn't mean we just keep on sinning so that that grace can just keep going. Uh, That's not how that works at all. That's ridiculous. If we died to sin, that means you have to stop sinning. That's what it means to die to sin. And he explains to us how our baptism is parallel with that. And it's parallel to what Jesus did. Just like Jesus died on the cross at baptism, we're dying to ourselves. We're dying to sin. Just like Jesus was fully buried in a tomb, we are buried in the waters of baptism. And just like Jesus was raised up out of the tomb, we are raised up out of the waters in newness of life. Yes. And so in verse 7, he who has died is freed from sin. So his point is, if you've died with Christ We believe that we shall also live with him. Stop letting sin be master over you. Quit sinning.
0: Yes. And and this is one of those places in Romans where it's helpful to see different concepts balance themselves out. Paul has emphasized throughout chapters 3 and 4 that we are justified by faith, not by our works. But sometimes people that will lead them to the conclusion, well, then I don't need to be baptized because that would be salvation by works. But if you keep reading in Romans and you get to chapter 6, you can see Paul talking to Christians who have been baptized, but he identifies baptism as the moment that they died to sin and then were made alive. That baptism is a symbolic act, but it's also the moment of forgiveness. And the book of Acts and 1 Peter and other places confirm this. And so as you read through Romans don't stop reading. Um, it's easy to take certain verses in Romans and almost pit them against other verses. And when we say that baptism is the moment of salvation, that's not saying, oh, well, if you're baptized, then you earn your salvation. That's not it either. No, go back and read chapter three and four. You don't earn anything by responding in faith. Uh, that is God's gift of grace. So again, Romans is oftentimes a battleground theologically, and you have to read the whole letter to get the self-correction that Mm -hmm. comes with reading the whole letter of Romans. So speaking of that, I think Romans 6, 7, and 8 kind of go together and represent different pendulum swings, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, different extremes that we can go to. In chapter 6, it's the pendulum swing of using, really abusing grace and saying, oh, well, if God's paying the tab of grace, then I'm just going to rack up a debt of sin. No, don't do that. You're dead to sin. But chapter 7 kind of gives us the picture on the opposite end of people who are so hyper-focused on law that they neglect grace, neglect what Jesus has done, and they try to be justified on their own.
1: Yes. And so chapter 7, verse 5, I think works as a good outline of what chapter 7 is about. He says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death but now we have been released from the law. Chapter 8? Chapter 8. That's exactly right. And what it's going to look like to walk in the Spirit. And so the rest of chapter 7 is that verse 5 on what is the conclusion of someone that is trying to justify themselves by law? What is that going to look like? And in chapter 7, 13 through 24, Paul launches into, uh, I'll admit sometimes it's a debated section, but what I take as a section of what it looks like for a man to try and justify himself by law. Uh, It's going to be a constant back and forth of hating yourself and then loving yourself. Hating yourself, then loving yourself. And this constant back and forth that will eventually end with you saying in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? That is not a place where I want to be. And some have described this section as Paul describing a personal conflict he has with himself, but I really think he's describing someone that's walking by the flesh and isn't seeking to be justified by the Spirit. Yeah, and, and we can we can resonate with this section, or uh, this section resonates with
0: us, because oftentimes we too are trying to live by law and not by grace. And so this, chapter 7, helps the overcorrection of Hyper focusing on what I am doing and just works of my own, if I don't have grace, I will despair because no matter how hard I try, there will still be times when I stumble, there will still be times where I give in to my flesh. And so, Paul describes the despair that comes from that kind of overcorrection. Chapter 8 is one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible Mm -hmm. because it describes the balance when you get it right and you're living by the Spirit. And that doesn't mean that you just keep doing whatever you want to do. He says in uh, verse, uh, where where does it go? Um, I've missed it. Uh, We're putting death, the deeds of the flesh. Here it is in verse uh, 13. Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are repenting of sin, but we're also seeing God's grace. Mm-hmm. And so there's these beautiful descriptions. The first half of the chapter talks a lot about what it looks like to live in the Spirit, that our minds are set on spiritual things, not on things of the flesh. We're set free from the law, um, but we give ourselves to God. That he's the one calling the shots now. And at the last half of chapter eight is really devoted to this topic of suffering. That even as we're walking in Christ, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really difficult at times to suffer. But we have to see the bigger picture. We have to see that God allows suffering to bring us closer to him at times. That's not the only uh, you know, explanation for suffering, but it's one of the things that happens, is that God can work all things together, including suffering, yes. for the good of those who love him.
1: And he talks about the power of this justification and how it should inspire confidence in us. Uh, one of the things he says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Uh, And so Paul, he's saying, Jesus didn't die for you to be this wishy-washy Christian who isn't sure of your salvation, but Christ died so you can be sure of it. And so that's the kind of confidence Paul is hoping to inspire in these Christians as he is helping this pendulum swing, as uh, Stephen has just talked about.
0: Yes. So Romans 8 ends with this crescendo of like God's always going to be with us. Uh, In verse 38, he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he ends this section, um, like you said, Chase, with this beautiful picture of justification and what that means. But in the last part, of the concept section of Romans chapters nine through 11 is kind of its own unit in the book. He is going to turn his attention to a question that the the Christians in that time were particularly having. Hey, what about Israel? Mm -hmm. Like God worked with them over the centuries and now it just feels like maybe he wasn't true to his promise. Like why are so many Jews not accepting their Messiah? What's going on? And so Paul approaches this in three parts chapter nine he talks about god has the right to choose who's saved that's right and so he uses several interesting analogies for that the potter and the clay he talks about pharaoh in the old testament but ultimately that god is the one who's in charge and we don't have any right to say to god hey it's not fair who you're letting be saved or not no, God's the one who gets
1: to choose. He's the one in the driver's seat of this whole yes.
0: story from the beginning.
1: Yes, and uh, one of the things he'll reference is from Moses, I believe in the book of Exodus, in chapter nine, fifteen: I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Um, and so God is the one that gets to choose here. He, he is the one that gives the path to salvation and chooses what those things will look like. Mm-hmm. This is also a chapter where you see Paul wear his heart on his sleeves. Uh, he doesn't forget his roots. Paul's a Jew. By, by birth, by nature, that's what he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he says in verse three of chapter nine, "For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul wants his Jewish brethren to be saved. But he still recognizes that it was right and just for God to choose the way in which people receive Christ. And if they're not going to submit to that, that is on them, that they need to come to Christ as the Messiah and accept him.. Yeah.
0: And so at the end of chapter nine, and spilling into chapter 10, he points out that the failure uh, of many Jews to receive Jesus as their Messiah is not God's fault. It's their fault. Mm -hmm. And he uses a lot of Old Testament references throughout this whole section, I I think in particular because it was the Jews who were struggling with this. Like, what happened to the rest of our nation? And he's like, hey, listen, this has all been said from the beginning. Uh, He uses their own scriptures to show them God's plan in Christ. But he points out, listen, this is on the Jews. They had every opportunity to believe, and they still have an opportunity to believe, he'll say in chapter 11. But it's not god's fault he sent preachers he they knew what they needed to do but they jesus wasn't what they were expecting and so they rejected him Mm -hmm. and that's on them for rejecting what god said he would do and so the last part in chapter 11 is where he basically says listen but the door's not closed (laughs) this is not over Uh, For all the Jews, Uh, they still have the opportunity and uses a really cool analogy of uh, an olive tree Mm -hmm. and that it has natural branches, which are kind of the Jews. And then there are branches that can be grafted in, which is like the idea of like you tie the branch back onto the tree and it grows into a trunk of a tree that it wasn't originally on. And that's like the Gentiles who have been brought in to share in the blessings of Abraham and the covenant promises of God but he says something really helpful in Romans 11 in verse 33, excuse me, in verse 22. And I think this helps sum up a lot of this. Romans 11:22. he says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And so whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, He's already laid out. You have to be justified by faith. Don't come to the table thinking you have it all together and you know what God's doing. No, you need to humble yourself and accept the the Jesus that God actually did send. not the one that you hoped he would send. And then trust in him, whether you're Jew or Gentile, and then continue in him. Mm-hmm. It's not a once saved, always saved thing, but... If you stop continuing in the kindness of God, you too will be cut back off, Uh, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile.
1: Yes, and so verse 32 sums it up well as well. Uh, For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Uh, We are all equally condemned for sin, but we are all equally given the opportunity to have the mercy of God shown to us through his son Jesus and put faith in that. And so that brings us to chapter 12, which is the Overall application section. Because after Paul has preached the gospel, this obviously is going to transform our life in a lot of different ways. And so, chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so this is Paul's working thesis for the rest of the book.
0: That's right. And so there's really two big concepts here. Verse 1, we are a living sacrifice. Mm -hmm. That would have meant a lot to the Jews, right? Because they're thinking about these Old Testament sacrifices. But the Gentiles are part of this now too, but not a dead sacrifice, A living sacrifice. Every day we are living for the Lord now, not for ourselves. And the second is this transformation, not being conformed. Don't be like the world. And that would have been particularly helpful for the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Don't be like the other Gentiles. Don't do the things they do. You have to be changed by the renewing of your mind. And so there's going to be at least six sections here. There's different ways to break this up. But the first one is in chapter 12, verses uh, 3 through 8, where he talks about, hey, listen, in one body, there's a lot of different gifts. And these aren't just miraculous gifts that he talks about in this section. Mm -hmm. But he says, you've got to have your head on straight about these gifts. They're not about you. You need to have humility about the gifts and use them to build up the body And not to focus on you. Mm -hmm. Because, again, you can see that was a problem in Corinth. Apparently, maybe that was an issue in Rome as well. That uh, to be unified, you've got to be willing to use your
1: talents to serve others and not just call attention to yourself. In verses 9 through 13, uh, you see more of that transformation. Uh, Little things like, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Before we were Christians... We were loving what is evil and clinging to that, and we were abhorring the good. Now now you're transformed. That is all flipped on its head. And so uh, he kind of keeps that theme up through there. Yeah, and it's almost like a rapid-fire list of, like,
0: here's what it looks like to be transformed. <laughs> yeah. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. Like, he's just like, boom, 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 boom. And each one of these you can slow down and, like, really meditate mm-hmm. on each one. But it's a a rapid-fire summary of, like, here's what a transformed life looks like.
1: And so that's going to lead into how you treat each other, both Jews and Gentiles, learning how to work together for the Lord and learning how to forgive one another. Um, In verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Um, Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, this lifestyle of Christianity changes the way that you treat other people.
0: Yes. And it kind of ties in with the next section because a lot of what Paul talks about at the end of chapter 12 is vengeance, you know, returning evil for evil. I'm going to pay that person back. But then in chapter 13, he turns to the government which is actually one of the ways that God uses to take vengeance on people if the government is acting appropriately. Now, of course, Paul was living in the time of the Roman Caesars, and you don't have to look very far to see just what a broken system of government that was, Mm -hmm. how terribly evil most of the Caesars were, probably all of them. But what he says is that as an institution, human governments are established by God, and you can't just disrespect them because the rulers are evil. Now, you still call out the sin where you see it, but there is a respect that is due to those in positions of power in this world. And so we need to submit to the governing authorities. And we have a hard time with that as Americans, don't we? Yes, we do. Our whole country is, like, based on disrespect to government um, initially. And so we struggle with this, uh, you know, a couple of millennia later. But the same principles are true now that we need to be people who are not rebelling against the governments of men. And again, we can get off into the weeds on these kind of discussions, but these would have been things that were hard for them to hear in the first century, and they're hard for us to hear on the other side of the world 2,000 years later. But to be transformed means that it transforms our relationship with other people and even our relationship as a citizen of a a nation of men.
1: So kind of taking the principles Paul laid out in chapter 12, you see them pop up again in chapter 14 as Paul turns his attention to talking about how you treat a brother who is willing to eat or not eat something. Um, And again, that would depend on whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. And he points out that all of this faith in the Lord is going to work together in perfect harmony in the way you treat these situations. Uh, And so looking Back in chapter 14, um, in verse 20, Do not tear down the work of God uh, for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. And so before they launch into just eating whatever they want, they need to be thinking about their brother's conscience and is it going to violate. Yeah. But this principle Paul is laying out, it goes a lot bigger than just what you eat, isn't it, doesn't it, Stephen?
0: Yes, and in and, and some ways Romans 14 represents one of the core problems that was happening in the churches of Rome where the Jews and Gentiles are coming from different cultural backgrounds. They have different standards for even something as simple as what they eat for a meal. And the two big things that Paul says is if you are someone whose conscience is more strict, whose conscience constrains you on something, then don't judge someone who is not holding to something as strict as you are. And on the other side, if you're someone who is less strict, don't despise the brother who's being more strict and think oh what what a what a drag that is you know no they're doing that for the lord there are a host of ways that this chapter can be misused and misapplied but at its core paul is trying to say listen this is an issue on which god has actually spoken it's okay to eat that stuff and he has some clarifications in the chapter to talk about it. it's okay to eat meat but if someone feels that it's not okay to eat meat respect their conscience mm-hmm. don't make them do something that they think is wrong because that would actually be wrong for them. Um, He talks about uh, toward the end of the chapter here, uh, he says in verse 23, the last verse of Romans 14, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Mm -hmm. And this actually spills over in the chapter 15, verse 13. And this is where he kind of broadens out and says in the bigger context of the gospel unity is more important than these specific you know squabbles that they were having over food he's like you guys need to be united in the gospel now it's important to talk about specifics um, again there's ways that this can be misused but he zooms out in chapter 15 and says all this is so that you can with one voice glorify god together in one body uh, so welcome one another as god has welcomed you
1: yeah, and th- they need to love each other. Uh, ver- verse four or 15, if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him whom Christ died. Yeah. Th- that's the bottom line for these people. That's right. So we won't delve as deeply
0: into the last section of Romans, but Paul talks about his plans, his mission to the Gentiles, that he wants to go where there haven't been churches start up yet. And he talks about, all the brethren there that he knows, all the yeah. he sends greetings to so many
1: different people, like he we talked about earlier. Mentions wanting to go to Spain in chapter fifteen twenty four, like Stephen had said earlier. Mm-hmm. So Paul has great plans for the Lord's work, and but it's all in the Lord's will. Um, and so Paul, one of the last things he says in this letter uh, in chapter sixteen twenty. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yeah. Uh, I really like that. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Um, And isn't that so true that God is still using us as the church to crush Satan whenever we obey the gospel and let that transform our lives? That's right. So, So Paul has written this letter
0: to the churches in Rome to unify them through the good news of Jesus. And he's done that by a lengthy argument that he's developed over 11 chapters and then do some very practical day-to-day living in chapters 12 through 16. Um, So it's a beautiful thing to see what God has done and then how we ought to live in
1: light of that. Amen. So, Lord willing, next week we're going to go right into the next book, uh, which is going to be the book of Philippians, um, which is, in a lot of ways, kind of opposite from the book of Romans. It's got a few other points that Paul needs to make to them. So, Lord willing, we'll get into that then.
0: Yes. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. If you'd like to study with us locally, or if you're from somewhere else, we'd love to connect you with someone. Reach out to us here, 717-585-0949 or capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies and worship, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.